everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rick and Danny Show. Danny, how are you doing this week? Doing well this week. Uh, we almost have a full clinic. There's been a lot of people on vacation in July, so it's been, you know, struggle for all of us individuals. But uh, it's been fun. Um, been on vacation recently, Rick, and glad to be back on the podcast. Oh, nice. Well, speaking of amazing vacations, we're joined by one of our preeminent uh, scholars in this company, Dr. Bajoy Telavala. Dr. Telavala, I don't want to, if you're okay sharing, you can tell the listeners a little bit about where you just came back from and introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Sure, Rick. First of all, call me Bajoy. Um, so I'm one of the uh, partner physicians in CSNF, and I spent two weeks in East Africa on a safari. It was one of the best experiences in my life. Seeing the animals in the wild in their natural habitats was breathtaking. They were 10 to 12 feet away from the jeep or fence. And um, seeing them with their young ones, seeing them hunt, seeing them escape the hunter, seeing them play in the water, seeing them migrate across rivers was spectacular, something I won't forget. Though, the flights were a pain in the rear. <laughs> 38 hours to get there oh. and 40 hours to come back oh. out the door. Oh. oh, my God. Luckily, the airports had showers and change rooms. And a tip, carry your PJs on the long 16-hour flights. They're much more comfortable than your pants. <laughs> or do what I've seen most people do these days. And now people just wear their PJs. <laughs> my wife did. She changed into her PJs, boarded the flight, and kept them on throughout the entire flight. Yeah, that's you that's wild. Bring your bedding from home. Bring yeah, your exactly. Pillow, your... Bring your house, your bed. <laughs> Hello. Exactly. That's crazy. That sounds sounds like a fantastic trip. I'd seen the wild animals and was it was it at times a little graphic being out there because you see some of the uh videos of the lions and you know some of the battles on, on some of these videos that come up on YouTube feeds. Was it was it like that in real life? It wasn't that graphic because I think what you see on YouTube and National Geography is the curated ones, the best of the best. Mm-hmm. But it was just different. It felt that we were invading their space. And thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago, they roamed the entire continent. Now they only have one-fifth of the continent to do what they normally did. And I do hope we can keep up these spaces for these animals to live the life they are supposed to live and not live life in the zoo. Right. They can't even... Truly can't even imagine what that trip must have been like. Are the encounters pretty close in the vehicles? They come up yeah. right next yeah, to so, your, your vehicles. Um, and... So the elephant was probably five to eight feet away from the our Jeep. We had a lion run probably 10 feet away. A lioness looking for her cubs who got lost because there were two packs. And one of the dominant pack was chasing the cubs away. Uh, we saw lion mating probably... 12 feet away from our Jeep. Dinner and a show. Yes. <laughs> and then um, while we are having lunch, a horde of elephants moved probably 30 feet away from our tents. And in the night, some of the wildebeests were probably three to four feet away from our... That's crazy. How'd your daughter like it? She loved it. I think the kids enjoyed it much more than uh, the adults did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, service was fantastic. People were very nice. They had much less than what we have here in America. They had a big smile on their face, and they were always happy. 
It's amazing. Yeah. Well, Dr. Televala, he's going to undersell himself, but he's been, when did you start with CSNF? 2010. And I would say um, probably one of our foremost experts in the company, uh, both on the medical decision-making side and on the business of medicine side. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And her most Twitter famous. And I was, I was, I was, I was going to lead into that. I was going to lead into that. I'll cut this. Out. I just wanted. To, I didn't want to make him blush too early. I was going to try to, you know. But now, and it's X.com. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Not Twitter anymore. So you can catch Doctor Televala on X.com at the Joy <laughs> Televala. <laughs> he has thousands, plural, yeah. of followers. So great. He's a. Uh, how are we doing numbers wise compared to him, Brenna? Really good, really good. So. Uh, you're saying we could use the. Does that bejoy- mean we're- <laughs> I got it. We could use the. Bejoy we're years bump. behind, or how many? <laughs> we could use the bejoy bump. That would be. Oh yeah. That would be uh, well. All right. I know. In um, for no those of you guys who listened to the episode with the audio was a little rough at the top golf, but it oh. worked out well. Uh, bejoy told us a little bit about why he got into social media and sort of what he views the role of it as. But I mean, do you, I guess, jumping off that conversation, do you foresee big changes in the social media space when it comes to you as a physician and your interaction with patients and also, you know, other health, I believe it is other health entities. Do you foresee there being changes in the social media space? I think that's a great question. There are so many social media platforms. And I think if you want to keep your followers engaged, you have to have honest ideas, original ideas, and something which will help them. So as long as you keep on doing that, I think people will pay attention to what you are saying. The rules I like to follow is no personal attacks. Never put patient information on the social media like their names or something else. I avoid patient pictures just because I don't want someone to feel uncomfortable having their face on a social media app. But I think especially Twitter or X as we now know it as. Mm. Biggest use has been collaboration with experts and friends across the country. I've made many friends and colleagues that way whom I can call upon to ask a question when I do not know. And branching off, any physician who says that they know it all are lying. None of us know it all. And I think it is our ethical responsibility to tell the patients when we don't. It's okay to say, I know someone who knows more than me, and I'm going to ask him or her and get you an opinion so that you don't have to travel 5,000 miles away just to get their opinion. That, to me, has been the value of social media. Also taught me a lot, hearing about different people's approaches, hearing about new data. You want to give what is best for the patient today. Yeah, I think um, in my practice, Twitter in the Radon community, there's not as much of that, I think, as in the heme, especially that I feel like the heme community is very strong with the cases. But there are social media platforms that I use a lot. Similarly, the MedNet, which mm-hmm. you guys probably know, it's a great place to, you know, just even if it's completely unrelated, you just read answers from different experts across the country and it really helps oh yeah, I didn't think of it this way, or oh, I forgot about this piece of data. Mm-hmm. And then you can ask your own questions. So I think social media has helped democratize the dissemination of information um, in the medical space, because we all trade at different institutions that have, you come in with your own biases for how to practice. So it's really nice when you can get the opinions of people across the country, across the world that can help kind of 
formulate a plan and, and at least give you an idea. So I think it's something that I definitely use quite a bit. Um, again, even if it's just kind of as a learning opportunity. Right. I think that's the difference is like the med net is aimed more at physicians or advanced nurse practitioners, you know, where they'll go on and, and read these forums of uh, one question was asked and maybe four people across the country has answered it maybe in different ways and are helpful to pr practitioners and Twitter X is also helpful for practitioners, but, you know, patients can be on there too and listen to you and listen to other people around the country and see what they have to say about their disease state. Um, and, but I think it's good having both of those out there. One that's more tailored to practitioners, one that's more open to everyone, you know, and, and there's more coming out too. I mean, Facebook has its own thing where, what is it? Red's yes. coming out. And so, which has come out. And so, um, it's just more opportunity for people to collaborate together. So one comment, it's sometimes when we post cases and you see diverse opinions from two experts could be completely opposite of each other, which makes you realize that sometimes there is never a 100% right answer. Mm -hmm. Each of us have a slightly different way of looking at the same problem. And so when we, we ourselves give a second opinion, we have to be cognizant of what our colleagues might have thought of the same problem slightly differently. And it's not wrong. There are different shades of gray. There's very little in medicine which is black and white. And Sometimes we forget that part. I have to remind myself that, okay, what the other person said is probably absolutely correct. And we just have to be cognizant. I was listening to a podcast about ITP coming in here. And uh, one of nerd. the- Nerd. Nerd, right. Uh, nerd. <laughs> but the speaker was talking about, and, and this could be across a bunch of different diseases, but is- is the treatment going to cause more harm than the disease is going to cause, you know? And so in relation to ITP, it's like, well, some people treat too early. They worry about a platelet count of 25, but the patient's not bleeding. So what are you, you know, you're administering treatment that could harm the patient for no good reason. You know, it's funny that the way you phrase that, because I remember, you know, at the M, Emory Radonc, we is an integrated program. So our intern year is a true medicine year. And a lot of your time is spent at Grady, which is the big county hospital in Atlanta. And what you learn right really quickly is you treat the patient in front of you, not the lab value, not what's, you know, the whatever these quote unquote objective data is. Because right. you see people with lab values that you're like, oh, this person must be dead. And then you go see them and they're eating breakfast and they're, you know, watching TV, having a good time. And then other times you expect someone to look great and you walk in and you go, oh, this is going to be a problem. So to your right. point, I mean, ITP being one example where not not everyone probably needs. Yeah. And you might have a 90-year-old who has a platelet count of 50, but it's bleeding and that patient needs treatment, you know. Right. So everyone's different. The common sense of oncology. Exactly. If only it were common. Well, other than, you know, the medical side of social media where we get to ping experts and, you know, learn different things and, and think about our opinion. I think one of the other things that's been interesting to me being on Twitter and following certain people, or excuse me, being on X and following certain people, you realize that you can get a lot of diverse opinions about things that used to be where if something came out of Institution X or Company Y or whatever, that was sort of, that was the dogma, that was the way it was, and everyone kind of was lockstep in line. But I think now 
because you're getting more of a democracy in the voices of different physicians or different people within institutions. It's been interesting to see there's been this little pushback against some of the things that probably previously would have just been accepted as kind of fact and knowledge. I think I would completely agree. When I started training, if a particular article came out in X journal, and we all know which one it is, and if it came from one of the big two or three cancer centers, that was considered a gold standard. And you accepted it as it is and never could voice your opinion about things which did not make sense. But in today's world, there are many more voices who try to critically appraise. And I use the word critically appraise in a loose term because some people will just call it as criticism and some people will just call it as good appraisal. It's somewhere in between, in my opinion, and try to point out the good, the bad, and the ugly. And social media has allowed a lot of physicians to easily access the information, and then they can decide what they think is true or not. To give you an example, drug company X makes a drug Y, which works great in second line in multiple myeloma. Now they want to move it to the front line, but they design the trials in a way that the people who progress don't get the drug in second line. That is to some degree trial design fault. It is not fair on those patients when it is established that it works in the second line, not to give it to them. How did it get past the regulators, the IRBs, the ethical committees? I can understand the pharmaceutical company doing it because it's an easy way out. But why are we as the medical community not standing up and saying, this is not what we want. We are not doing a trial for an easy win. We're doing a trial to see if it really works and helps people live longer with a good quality of life. Yeah, unfortunately, there's been too many examples of either not allowing mm -hmm. for the appropriate second line therapy or just for straight up trial comparator arms that are not great. I mean, that's just, it's ubiquitous. And I think what social media has helped at least me understand is you get some of the counterpoints opinions as opposed mm -hmm. to it used to be you might get a letter to the editor or someone write in but then that's probably heavily censored and you know so there's there's that piece and then the other thing i think that social media has allowed is more people who maybe aren't in bajoy's position as a partner physician in a practice he you know help runs and owns Folks who are in uh, the ivory tower, or ivory tower in academia, who may feel uncomfortable putting their name to things, they can certainly anonymously, you know, post things or shed light on things. So I think it's given a lot of help in that front, where you know, obviously, people would fear about retribution against them and you know, hurting their career and things like that. So it's, a, I think, overall, it's been a good force in medicine. Obviously. The, neg the criticism can be taken too far and taken to an extreme where it becomes personal. Um, but I think, you know, most people don't right. don't go that far and realize it's not a personal attack. It's you're trying to just constructively criticize, um, you know, things that you could see that may could have been done better. And more importantly, to do better in the future. I think what you were getting at, Bajoy, is, you know, this drug you were talking about is being studied in a setting where they're trying to move up the drug from a second line to a first line indication 
having a bigger patient base, you know, from the get go that they can make the drug company can make more money. And, and this is not the only example of something like that happening. Um, so realistically, how do you, how do you change that? You know, because if this falls through the cracks once it's, it's doing it more, much more than once. And there are people that are allowing it to do so maybe for financial incentive, maybe not, you know, but, um, it's, it's going to be a problem until you have enough voices step up to say, we're not going to allow for this. You know, at the end of the day, it's about the patient getting the best treatment. And if that best treatment's extremely expensive, you know, we have to swallow the cost because that that's allowing patients to live longer and have a better, better life. But, um, certainly you have to prove that that expensive drug is going to do that and do it without incentivizing people or, you know, incentivizing people to do the wrong thing. Uh, Danny, I think you bring up a great point. And I don't think that there is one answer which fixes it all, but I think there's one word which can help. Everyone being more honest. The pharmaceutical company designing a more honest and ethical trial. The KOLs, which we call as key opinion leaders, not allowing trials which are substandard with weak competitor arms, not allowing them to be opened at their big centers, aka the ivory towers. Less cheerleaders. If a trial is positive but does minimal work or minimal help, not calling it the next best thing after sliced bread. Having real numbers in the article, which you can show the patient, not response rates, not waterfall plots, not objective response rates and random ratios. How about simple numbers like this medicine or this therapeutics or this radiation therapy made you live X amount of time longer? Plain and simple. If we do all of it, can we fix the problem completely? No, but we can improve it. And that is what majority of doctors want. We want better medicines for the patient. We want our patients to live longer with a good quality of life and at the same time, not bankrupt them with the cost. It is a balancing act. So if everyone does the right thing, we will be in a much better spot than we are today. And this is not only true for oncology. It is true for other things too. I can go on about the cardiology trials where they compared a new drug to an inhibitor which no one ever uses. Or at a dose that's unrealistic for a patient to take. I'll challenge you on one point, and then this is just kind of coming up in my patient examples, that you have a patient with a certain common cancer, but a rare mutation, right? 1% of the, the mutations we typically see in a disease state. And so that would make a, a treatment for that mutation is, is rare. You don't come across it all that time. But that treatment, the trials aren't going to be big. They're going to be small sample sizes. You're not going to have a phase three trial. Um, but that's a, a setting where you might look at overall response rate. You might look at um, duration of response as an endpoint and say, I'm going to choose that front line for the patient because I know that's better than giving the patient chemotherapy, for example. There are always exceptions right. to the rule. But, but we're talking about but the you, general. You take the counter example. Right. Common cancer, which has an incidence of 100,000 new cases a year. You can easily 
get the volumes to do a good trial. Mm-hmm. And the other sad part is the loss of control or the loss of big trials by cooperative groups. When I was in training, the biggest trials came from ECOG, SWOG, RTOG. What do you see now? Pharma-driven, pharma-written, pharma-sponsored trials with very vague, to some degree, made-up endpoints. Well, we have a, in my opinion, this obviously this is not specific, but generalized comments. There's like a two... There's been a bifurcation in trials. One is in the United States, most trials are primarily pharma-driven, pharma-led, pharma-funded. Even in the cooperative groups now, NRG, now a lot of their stuff has some drug attached to some arm so that, you know, help obviously with funding. But then you see trials coming out, at least in my field, coming out of Australia and Europe. Those are, tends to be the trials that are more Let's compare treatments. Let's not necessarily testing something new, but you're comparing existing treatments. You're comparing different things like that. And obviously they're, because they're incentivized differently to run those trials versus in the United States, more incentivized to run the trials that add a drug or move up a drug or things like that. So it's very, it's very interesting because it's almost like you have a, it feels like a tug of war going on between a lot again generally speaking trials coming from the states versus trials that are being designed elsewhere because it's kind of this push pull of one's very cost focused one's not so much cost focused and then there's kind of this playing out in real time which is very interesting yeah i kind of think about i think this was on one of the uh teams chats we had about in the metastatic setting for colorectal cancer using um chemotherapy combination full fox uri versus full fox with an antibody you know bevacizumab or, or an egfr inhibitor and um and and i think we talked about that data a little bit and and that this came up i because one of our partners was talking to a quote-unquote expert about you know an opinion on a patient that kind of fit with trying to make that decision between chemotherapy a or chemotherapy b regimen and, you know, from my recollection, one of the trials, and I think there were multiple trials, but one of the trials really only showed a progression-free survival benefit, which was marginal, you know, and, and so, but, you know, this person had a very strong opinion of using the more intensive therapy. Um, and it kind of goes to the point, this, this wasn't an expensive drug. Um, adding a chemotherapy in, but it, it's more toxic. It's more toxic, worse quality of life um, for for marginal benefit. That's not even overall survival benefit. So, it I, it just got me thinking that it's not always an expensive drug, but you know, it's it's looking at you know again endpoints. And to your point of not having overall response rate or progression free survival, but actually overall survival in addition to quality of life, you know, it's got to be those two things attached to one another. I want to make a comment. We use the term progression-free survival. It's not survival. It was progression-free duration. I don't know how we came up with the word survival because it doesn't tell us how long a patient is going to survive. Just death counts as an event. Correct. But all it says is how long is the patient's cancer going to be under control, remission, response on that particular cocktail? It's a duration. Right. It could be weeks, months, years, decades. Vincent Rajkumar from Mayo Clinic, 
wrote a beautiful piece explaining why this, this should not be survival, but duration. Because it is easy to confuse the patient and a lot of physicians when you show a progression-free survival benefit I'm improving survival. This is where my heart bleeds when I feel that we in medical school are not taught good statistics or the concepts to understand the nuances and the differences in these things. And we sometimes buy into the Kool-Aid and it unfortunately harms our patients to some degree. Right. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can make statistics say whatever you want. It can be, unfortunately, manipulated. All numbers can be manipulated. That's why, coming back, honesty and doing the right thing is the most important in the long run. Thanks so much, uh, Bajoy, for joining us here on another podcast. We thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and always, you know, just think the most of you here at our practice. We're just, you know, spoiled to have such a prominent Twitter personality <laughs> join us you know i just i feel i feel honored i don't know how we you know could all fit in the same room we somehow pulled it off you're making me blush rick <laughs> <laughs> not easy to do good to work.